Thank you, and thank you all. It's, it's great to see so many people here tonight to um, hear about education and children with autism. I'd like to introduce our panelists now. Um, first, we have Erin Rotham Fuller. She's an associate professor of special education at Arizona State University. She's been working with individuals with autism for over 13 years across multiple urban school districts. She's dedicated to exploring best practices in the social inclusion of children with autism in school. It's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> um, Daniel Openden is president and CEO of the Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center. Um, we know it is SARC, most of us. He's also a board-certified behavioral analyst and a licensed behavioral analyst with expertise in pivotal response treatment for children with autism spectrum disorders. He's an adjunct professor at ASU. Um, and Jan Cawthorn is the executive director of Mesa Public Schools. I know Jan well because she makes my life very easy as a reporter who sometimes covers special ed Mesa schools. She is a board-certified behavioral analyst also and a licensed behavioral analyst and is currently completing a doctoral program in educational leadership and innovation at ASU. She spent many years working in family, school, and community settings in Pennsylvania, where she focused on the needs of children with autism and other developmental disabilities. And as a reporter, I know Jan as someone who can make complicated issues very simple. So I'm hoping that Jan will start us out tonight. Um, just by giving, so we're all on the same page, giving us some background in um, education for students with autism and how it's changed in recent mm -hmm. decades. Okay, our district has students from preschool all the way up to high school. So um, when you wanna describe what it's like to serve students with autism, it's a full range of services that we need to provide. And the kids that come to us are very different depending on whether they're preschoolers, high schoolers, and autism just by its very nature, there's a lot of diversity in, in the types of um, ways that kids present. Uh, what we see, at Mesa is a lot of um, issues related to students with communication problems, and that's one of the areas that we need to address. Um, often these students come to us with um, a lot, of, just by the nature of autism, um, communication is one of the main areas of deficits that kids have. It may start with a, a child who is nonverbal and has very little communication skills, and maybe they come to our preschool with not a lot of background. Hopefully they've gotten some early intervention in the home. Um, but basically, um, communication problems is what we see, social skills problems, a lot of them have a lot of difficulty um, interacting with one another, and in an instructional setting, they have a lot of difficulty sometimes with um, group instruction, that they're used to kind of one-to-one -one interactions, and we have to really teach them how to be a, a part of a group and really understand all the subtle nuances that, that happen in a school setting. Jan, um, could you also give us some perspective on how the mission of school districts has changed with mm -hmm. um, teaching children with mm -hmm. autism over the last several decades? Mm -hmm. Behind the scenes, you and I were talking about right. how, you know, decades ago there were no requirements. Right. So exactly. how, how were things once and how are they now? Yeah. Well, back in, the, in my early career, um, students didn't even really have the right to education. In 1975, that all changed when federal laws came about that 
required public schools to really give education to students with disabilities regardless of what that disability looked like. And through the years, um, I think when we started, often kids with disabilities were put in kind of segregated settings and there was a place where special ed students were, and usually it was in the back of the school or somewhere kind of away. Um, and what we've learned over the years is that inclusive practices is really important, that we want our kids with disabilities to be interacting with the kids in the school community, that they need to be part of that school community. So that's been a real priority. Okay. Well, I want to move on to Erin now, and I'm wondering if you can tell us about um, just some of the challenges parents face in getting a proper diagnosis at an early age for a child that they suspect might have autism? Um, well, in terms of some of the challenges, I think, um, you know, the biggest thing is knowing your resources, knowing who's out there, um, knowing who to go to first. And um, sometimes when you get an early kind of warning sign, you don't know who to approach first. You don't know if you're going to your doctor, then, you know, where do I start? Um, especially knowing, you know, in your context, how your schools work, how your district works, um, and knowing kind of what, um, what to look for in terms of the providers and the diagnosticians that you're going to. So those are, are some of those early initial challenges, I think, um, that everybody faces whenever you hear something new or hear about something new if you're not familiar with it. Um, and then there's, you know, once you get to that process and you start the process of going through the diagnosis, then um, figuring out, you know, well, what does that mean and how is that going to apply once my child goes to school or in other settings, you know, what is that going to mean for, for um, the next steps? Um, so I think there's, it's kind of new challenges at each step of the, the process of the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of historical perspective, is it easier now to um, find out exactly what the issue might be with a child who might have autism, or is it still as complicated as ever? Um, well, I don't know that it's easier, but, but there's definitely more awareness. We have mm -hmm. a lot more awareness, and there's, I think, a lot more people that are being trained in how to go about the diagnostic process and how to um, serve children that um, may have some awkward social behaviors or communication problems, and I think that awareness and that you know, kind of growing workforce does make it a little bit easier um, because you, do, you have a lot more people that are aware of where to turn and where, where to go. Um, there's a lot more parent networks out there. There's a lot more, um, you know, kind of knowledge of um, from peers and from other people that are in the same school that can really help. And so that that does make it a little easier. Okay. And I just have one more kind of background question. So we're all on the same page for Daniel. Um, I recently read that there's a higher percentage of children with autism in Arizona than nationally, um, one in 64 instead of one in 68. And um, if you just look at the boys, the percentage is even higher. So I'm wondering, like I imagine a lot of people here, are we just better at identifying kids with autism or are there more kids with autism? What, what do you think? Uh, I think it's probably the first, that we're, we're probably better at identifying autism. There's been a lot of uh, organizations, not just ours at SARC, but a lot of people that have done a lot of work to raise awareness, particularly in our medical community, so physicians are more aware of being able to make a diagnosis of autism. Actually, what's interesting about that report is that the previous report was showing one in 88 in, uh, nationally and one in 64. And now, nationally, it's one in 66 and, one in, and Arizona didn't change much. So, um, right, so my numbers are even old. Yeah. 
Yeah, so <laughs> I thought they were uh, just a couple weeks old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's uh, so even that's uh, sort of changed a little bit. And, and Arizona, from the previous report, actually stayed pretty stable, okay. um, which I think is uh, which I think is really I don't know if that's good or bad, but um, but now I think we're we're mirroring closer to uh, what the national rates for autism are around the country. Okay. And you're saying that this is because we're getting smarter at making the early diagnosis. I think, well, I don't know if it's early diagnosis. I mean, I, I think that uh, if, I think we're getting better at raising awareness for diagnosis in general. Remember that that report is looking at um, up to kids that are eight years old. Okay. And if you look at the average age of diagnosis in Arizona, we're at four years and 11 months. Um, we can reliably diagnose kids between 18 months and two years, and the symptoms are emerging sooner than that, and we're getting better at identifying those as well. So it may also be that we're identifying more six-year-olds, more seven-year-olds as well. So uh, those kids that maybe were missed early on that we're now picking up in later years also. Okay. Well, my next question is for you again. Um, why is it important to have that diagnosis at age four instead of 14? Um, and then when the child is diagnosed that young, what happens? Yeah. And maybe you can tell us a bit about the Sark Preschool. Sure, so I would say actually even four is much later than we'd wanna be, right? So um, here's what's interesting about uh, autism, because we, we still have so much to learn and as a whole probably know so little, um, we argue in this field about just about everything. You can find just about any issue and find people on opposite sides of that issue. And I think it comes from a lack of real good understanding about what autism is and how it's caused, how we treat it, et cetera. But the one issue that uniformly I think everybody uh, agrees on is that we gotta identify kids as early as possible and we gotta get them into treatment as early as possible. You'll find very few people who think that we should diagnose kids later. Um, and the reason for that is, is uh, all of the, the best outcomes in terms of what we see relative to treatment um, are, have been associated with early intervention. And that's not to say that if we start kids or we miss that window that they can also improve or demonstrate good outcomes as well. But generally speaking, the earlier, the better. Um, so uh, we're at SARC, we're, we're, uh, we have an inclusive preschool program that we start kids as young as 18 months. Uh, that's for kids with autism and their typically developing kids. The school's got about 60 kids and 24 of them have autism. Um, and uh, at some point, we'd love that to expand that down to an infant program even. So, I, I mean, I think for us, we're, we're, we're excited about what we might be able to do to identify kids even younger. Um, we have a, an exciting project we're trying to get off the ground this year um, where we'd actually be recruiting uh, the baby siblings of uh, already diagnosed kids with autism. And these kids are at a higher risk. They have an increased 20% risk of, of also getting diagnosed with autism. Um, most people just follow those kids and, and kind of watch for autism to emerge. We think that we want to do is start recruiting those baby siblings and start working with them at six months of age. And then we want to evaluate them at about 18 months of age. And if less than 20% of them have a diagnosis of autism, we may have actually prevented some cases of autism. Those that do go on to have autism, um, will have just started uh, early intervention more than four years earlier than the average age of diagnosis. So um, to us, it's always earlier the better. The emphasis has got to be on that, and the best outcomes seem to be associated with early intervention. Okay. Well, um, Aaron, he just mentioned combining kids who've been diagnosed with autism and mainstream kids in his program, and I know you've done research on the importance of this. Um, can you explain to us why it's important to mix the kids, and also how, how does it benefit the mainstream kids um, to get to know kids with autism? Well, yeah, so a lot of our, um, 
a lot of schools a lot of across the country were really looking at inclusion as a model being um, more and more prevalent. We've seen kind of the rates increase dramatically over um, even the last 10 years. And the more that happens, um, we have to be prepared for it in the schools. Um, and the kids uh, have to be ready and the teachers have to be ready for that. And what we see in the classrooms is that more and more teachers are, you know, kind of getting these kids in the class and they're not entirely ready for it and the kids aren't ready for it. Um, and that's when there, you know, some conflicts happen. But when we see the great outcomes of inclusion, we see that the uh, typical peers that are in there, the typically developing peers, are really become um, more accepting, more tolerant, more understanding of differences. Um, we see kids with autism that get exposed to more uh, learning opportunities. They get uh, more, you know, modeling of social behaviors that, you know, we want them to learn. Um, there are a lot of really great possible benefits to inclusion, and, and that's really why we're, we're striving for that um, for uh, most of our kids with autism. And so now it's just a matter of kind of figuring out the right match between the child and the classroom and making the more and more classrooms ready to accept, you know, every kid out there, and especially those kids with some social challenges. Okay. Well, Jan, tell us what's going on in district schools with inclusion, mainstreaming. Um, you know, I think a lot of us have a picture in our minds of a special education class where kids are isolated and they're only with other kids, um, you know, with similar problems. Yeah. So what's going on? We really need to offer a continuum of services in public schools. Uh, we're required by federal law to do so. So what we really do is, is assess students individually to determine what is it that they need, and our goal is always to have them in the least restrictive environment. So we want to make sure that they're in there in general ed, participating with their general ed peers uh, to the maximum extent possible. So across the board in Mesa, um, most of our kids are getting some experience within uh, general ed settings. Some of our kids with autism are fully included. They're um, actually participating in the uh, regular classes just like anybody else. Uh, we find some of those kids do need maybe some social skills training and they might you know, come out and, and have some of that as a, a separate class. Um, most of them academically are getting the same types of exposure to the general curriculum and um, we do a lot of supports to them with things, uh, writing tends to be a real issue with our kids with autism and giving them things like graphic organizers and systems to help them be better writers um, really is successful and we're always looking for how can we support those kids in that general ed environment. And there are times when we do need to bring them in that due to a lot of other issues, they might need some, some specialized instruction that has to happen on a more individualized basis. Um, and we're prepared to do that if we need to as well. Um, what about parents? How, how do you deal with questions from parents who might not be expecting their son to be you know, a cubicle buddy with someone with autism? Mm -hmm. We find usually that the education that we do um, to parents in, in an individual school is very helpful, that often a parent, it, you know, and it depends on, on the particular school and, and the population of kids with autism that are there, but there are times when if there's one student in a classroom that we'll have that, um, the parent will actually come in and help do a classroom exercise with the other kids and talk about that disability and what autism is if kids aren't familiar with that, um, and involving even the parents of those children. Um, so that's what we've done in some of our be kind of like a classroom aid. Exactly. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask you another one. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> okay. So I've been to one of your schools um, that specializes in helping nonverbal mm -hmm. teenagers with autism. Really cool stuff. They're on computers. They're doing Common Core. But I wonder how much 
much time do those kids really have for socializing if you know, their academics have to be so intense? How do you work that into the day? I think there's a, and again, that's done very individually, that most of the time our students with autism do have some social skills um, goals on their IEPs. Um, so there is a, an actual plan for those students to have that social time. Um, we have a number of different structured programs that we do with those kids um, that are actually structured curriculum. Uh, we have a, um, often a speech therapist gets very involved in running social skills groups and that type of thing for those kids. How would a social skills group run? Uh, generally, it would be similar kids that would have the same type of uh, disabilities. Often what we do with social skills groups are um, some training and perspective taking. We might be doing a lot of practice and um, having different scenarios come up and then having real experiences for those kids as well. Okay. I imagine you do similar things at SARC. Can you fill us in on um, the, the way these groups might run for, for the kids? You know, at SARC, we, we um, starting again with looking at our preschool, but, but we, we wouldn't put a group of kids with autism together. Uh, we would only put kids with autism with typically developing kids. Um, so just as an example, everything we're doing within our preschool, I remember when I, when I started, um, you know, one of my pet peeves was if we had a, a wagon full of kids and there were two kids in the wagon and only two kids and they both had autism, I had a real pet peeve problem with that. Um, the idea was that we'd always want them staggered together. So now you look at, you know, our, our pre-K classroom and even when they stop to go to the bathroom, the kids are staggered in line. Kid with autism and typical kid, kid with autism and typical kid. If they go to circle time, if they sit down for lunch, we are always thinking about surrounding our kids with autism with typical children and, uh, and typical social behavior. And in doing that, then our job becomes to be able to facilitate those interactions between the kids. Um, same thing in the summer. We know uh, many places will offer social skills, summer uh, uh, groups for kids with autism during the summer. Our approach has been to partner with local summer camps and support kids to go to regular summer camps with typical kids. And they, we send staff with them to go there to facilitate interaction between the child with autism and all the other kids. Mm -hmm. So um, our, our approach is, is actually not to do um, a, a lot of social skills groups with just kids with autism, but to try to get kids around typical kids and around typical peer behavior as much as possible. Okay, and I'm not following why, why that's important. Or why is um, it important? Well, yeah. you know, I mean, why, why not have two kids with autism work on social sure. skills together? So, I, I mean, you know, there's, there, you know you're gonna, again, you're gonna find people with different philosophical differences, but for, for us, I mean, I think that the heart of what autism is is a social disorder. So it, it never made much sense to take kids who are all socially disordered and put them together and then people are not talking to one another. Um, the other side of that is that, you know, if you're talking about typically developing kids, even though you get a range there, on some level, at least in comparison to kids with autism, they're often like the social experts. And, uh, and so the, the opportunity to interact with these kids, to learn from them, to interact with them, is also really positive. Um, and then I think the last thing is, um, you have to remember that, that, that our, we want to be able to get kids with autism to have as many choices when they go out in the real world as possible. The fact of the matter is, is if they leave their home, they leave their school, they go out in the community, they get older, they become teenagers, they're adults, most of the people that they interact with are not going to have autism. If they go to a restaurant, if they go out to a park, if they go to a coffee shop, whatever else it is, the people that be, are taking their orders behind the counter, these are not people that are going to have autism. So the benefit is to try to be able to get them to learn skills that are going to generalize to as large of a population as possible. Okay.
Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so some of the research that I've been doing is really about that social aspect in schools once they get to the elementary school, so a little later than where they are in the SARC preschool. And what we, um, we did a randomized trial where we looked at training the child with autism specifically in social skills, and we looked at training peers in the classroom, and we compared which one would be more um, influential on including the child with autism hopefully after the intervention. And by far across our um, conditions, we saw that training peers in the classroom was much more effective at getting the child with autism included. And so they had better social connections at the end of that intervention because these three peers who did not know that there was a child with autism in the classroom went out and were really good social models to everybody. And it was amazing because when we had these social skills groups, we would say, okay, well, who's having trouble in your classroom? And they'd be like, oh, well, Bobby and Jenny and this, and they never even got to our kids sometimes um, because they just, you know, they named everybody else in the class. But it was really important to see that that um, understanding of, you know, they needed to go out and be good social models by typical peers was, um, was really influential, not just for our child with autism, but for everybody. Um, and it really then was impressive how much it did help the children with autism as well. What's really cool on top of that, there was a, there's a really old study that was done on inclusive preschool programs, much like the one that Sark has. Um, and they did it as a, a study on the, uh, the impact of the typically developing kids. And they compared typically developing kids who uh, participated in inclusive schools for autism versus what they called these social star kids who had, who had, uh, who had participated in like the best preschools in their community. And they compared these to the two groups of typical kids and they showed them videos of kids with disabilities that were either um, successfully completing a task or unsuccessfully completing a task. And the first one they showed them, they were able to complete a task and the kids watched and they said, what do you think? And, um, and the, the kids that had been with the kids with autism looked at that and said, oh, well, yeah, of course he could do it, you know? And the, and the kids that had gone to these great preschools looked at that and go, I bet he couldn't do it again. And then they showed the same group, the kids, they showed a kid on a video that failed to accomplish a task. And they asked them, the two of them, what they did. And, the, and they asked the social star kids, the ones that came from the regular preschools, what do you think of that? And they said, well, yeah, he's a baby. You know, he can't do it. And, and then they asked the kids who had been in an inclusive environment. And their overwhelming response was, I bet I could teach him to do it. And uh, as somebody whose five-year-old son uh, is in an inclusive preschool classroom at Sark, and, uh, and a one-year-old one who's one today, actually, who's going to be coming in six months, um, that, I love that. I love that, uh, that I know that there are academic benefits, there are social benefits, um, and that actually the exposure of kids with autism uh, for our typical kids is probably improving their outcomes both academically and socially. Sounds like it's a good uh, philosophical benefit. It uh, yeah. teaches them something about life. Yeah, so. exactly. Erin, I wanted to ask you about um, the best teachers for students with autism. Uh, what does it take? Um, well, first they have to be open to it. <laughs> um, learning about autism, learning about um, kind of what are the unique and special needs that, um, that children with autism might bring to a classroom. A lot of the classrooms I work in are general education classrooms. Um, and it means sometimes collaborating with special education teachers. It means sometimes um, learning new things about the way that you teach, definitely learning to adapt teaching, um, but being flexible in that process. Um, and I think it also um, means setting the tone. Uh, you know, in the classrooms that I've been in, um, the, the most successful um, classrooms that I've seen are really about the teacher setting the tone that everybody in the classroom is important, everybody is going to be successful, and we're gonna do what we have to do for each other to make them 
really successful classrooms, um, and whether that's budding people up before they go to recess, or whether it's about you know helping each other with your work during you know some kind of academic time, it was really about teachers setting that tone and being explicit about it. Um, and the more that teachers can do that, I think those are the classrooms I see really being successful. So really spell, spelling it out, not counting on it happening automatically. Yeah, and, and children pick up all the time what we are seeing. So if teachers are frustrated, they're gonna notice that. If teachers are continually you know, picking on the same student or giving feedback to the same student, they're gonna notice that as well. And we see kids then giving feedback to that same student or ostracizing that same student. So really oh. being able to set that tone where we can, um, we can set the model that everybody is getting kind of equal treatment and that, you know, everybody is accepted and everybody is respected as a student in the class and a good, you know, active participant of the class is really important. Okay. Well, does it take any special background or any kind of special personality type or not really? Um, well, teachers are already coming in as a special personality type. I mean, you're, you're going in. Personality yeah, okay. you're, you're going in to help children. You're there every day, all day. It's 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 a lifestyle of, of teaching, um, and I think you know um, it's not going to be anything necessarily exceptional about teaching children with autism. But it is. It does take. It takes some extra time. It takes some patience. It takes figuring out um, a new group if you haven't already worked with them. Um, and I think it's more about you know how dedicated. Um, all of our teachers are, and then trying to kind of figure out how to adapt to um, all of the demands that teachers have, um, you know, whether it be the testing scores and everything else that goes on in the school, and then kind of adding that on top of it. So I think it's really just about that, that okay. dedication I, of flexibility. You said flexible at the beginning, so that would be a key word. Yeah. Okay. Are there enough teachers wanting to specialize in working with students with autism, or is there a shortage? Um, well, I think all teachers are going to be asked to do it at some point. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any any particular with subset that are not going to be. Yeah, okay. with, with inclusion happening, it's going to happen um, at just about every school. And so um, I think everybody's got to be prepared for that. Um, and I think our training programs are changing so that we can be um, at least more explicit about it in trainings um, and prepare people for autism in general. Um, but I think it's, it's definitely something that um, that we have to be more aware of and explicit about in, in both training and then practice. Okay. Well, Jan, um, Mesa's the largest district in the state. You hire tons of teachers every year. Are teachers coming in prepared for what they need to do, uh, being flexible like she describes? Yeah. Or? yeah. Um, I think that there's a skill set that teachers come in with, but I think there's a lot of on-the-job training that happens. I think as you experience things, and, and probably the skill I would look for the most as I hire new teachers is that piece of assessment, of being able to assess a situation, being able to problem solve through it, and know either to use your own resources or to, to seek outside resources to help with problems. Um, I think our teachers who aren't successful with kids with autism are the ones that give up too easily, that they, um, you know, things aren't in this nice little box, and the kid with autism is the, the person who's probably going to be the first one to be disruptive in class if instructional practices aren't the best, um, because you really need to engage them, and you really need to make sure that they're involved in the, the conversation. Um, so I think that having a teacher who can assess, can figure out problems, um, I think also that we tend to have teachers that want to create this kind of little setting for the student with autism and, and adapt the environment to the child. And we really believe very strongly that you need to really teach children with autism to adapt to the environment and, and to expect changes and to learn to be flexible because that's what the world's all about. 
So that those are some of the priorities that we really look for. really interesting. Well, I know um, Mesa is really tough on its teachers that are not successful. You know, there's <laughs> this new uh, evaluation system required by the state. So if you're not successful with children with autism, what, what happens to you as a mm -hmm. teacher in Mesa? Well, I think, you know, with any teacher, we, we look at training, and we have a lot of training available to our teachers. Uh -huh. um, we actually, for our both um, general education teachers and um, the other group of teachers that we target are our resource teachers who aren't really autism specialists on each campus, but we like to identify somebody who can be a go-to person if there isn't a, a autism specialist on that campus. Um, so we really want to try to get that information out to teachers so that they understand what the nature of autism is, so they know to, um, you know, when a child acts a certain way that, okay, there's, there's a reason for that and there's a, an appropriate intervention that goes with that. Um, and the same with, with our teachers that are um, more of the specialists with autism. We do put them through a pretty rigorous training. A couple times a year they come in. We, um, from time to time, they have, um, activities that they have to do in their own classroom and then bring that back the next time so it's an ongoing thing so that we're sure that they're addressing those kids' needs. Okay. I know you have something you want to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that's interesting, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's hard to be a teacher. I mean, there's so many, especially, I mean, look, an inclusion doesn't make it any easier on our general education teachers uh, because then now they're expected to be an expert of everything. And, and this is one of the things I think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major feather in the cap for Mesa schools because um, one thing is that they, they recognize that effectively teaching kids with autism is probably going to come down to uh, investing in people that know applied behavior analysis mm -hmm. and, and, and hiring board certified behavior analysts. They've done that in Jan. Okay, explain to us what that is. <laughs> applied behavior. Jan, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> applied behavior analysis is a methodology to work with kids um, based on principles of reinforcing good behaviors and, and those types of things. Um, we actually now are really excited because we have three BCBAs on staff, myself and then two others, um, who are there to really help and and the, the basis for um, ABA is that we do, when kids have behavior problems, we really do functional behavior assessments where we go in and we really try to figure out the, the cause of that behavior and the root of that behavior so that we can understand it better. And we want to use instructional practices that are based on ABA because that they um, are evidence-based and, and we get good results. It, it really speaks for itself. Um, okay. I, as I said before, I, I know nothing about any of this. Give me an example of an instructional practice based on ABA, because I can't even picture it. What, what would happen? Um, you can use me as the problem. <laughs> um, it might be teaching you um, using a, um, a lot of a structured teaching method to, to teach you a certain skill. Okay. Um, and then maybe taking that after you, you and I have practiced it for a little bit, we take it to a different environment to make sure that you can use that skill in a different environment as well. Okay. Danny, you yeah. want to add to that? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're looking at, at principles of teaching and learning, right? So um, most of what we do in ABA and autism is, uh, is called operant conditioning. So you have uh, a behavior and then you have a consequence. And so much of what we're trying to do is show uh, kids with autism that there are consequences to their behavior that are predictable and functional for them. Um, so if we were using you and uh, we were trying to get you to talk, uh, I might get your favorite car out, and I might hold up that car and wheel it down, and you might look at it and really want it. I might stop, uh, and I might wait, and I might say, what do you want? I might say, you know, car, and prompt you for it, but I'm going to wait for you to say car. And when you say car, I'm going to put this car in your hand so quickly so that you know that talking is what got you the car. 
Um, that would be one example of a, of a behavioral interaction so that we are, we are uh, sort of prompting or setting up your behaviors, the behaviors that we want to see that are more likely to lead to positive consequences. Yeah, it sounds really, really positive. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. I, I, like it, and also, it would be good for kids with any situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, ABA is, uh, has been around since, um, since the 60s. Um, and there's been, when we look at treatments in, in autism, generally speaking, those that have been based on behavior analysis are those that are evidence-based. We do a particular um, behaviorally based treatment called pivotal response treatment or PRT. I'm going to ask you about that. Ah, Good. Right. And, um, <laughs> and that's using the same behavioral principles, but kind of like what I described there, is all based on uh, motivation as an underlying challenge in kids with autism. Um, so for us, you know, in, in the example that I used before, um, there are other behavioral programs where I might say, you know, say car, and if you say car, I would give you an M&M. &M. Um, so I'm still reinforcing that your behavior. That even better. You like that better. <laughs> uh, but the problem with that is that for you who's, who's trying to learn uh, this different speech, there's no direct relationship between saying car and getting an M&M, &M, even though the M&M &M tastes better. Um, but if what you really want is the car, then, and you say car, we'll give it to you. If what you really want is the M&M, then we'll have you say candy or M&M right. to be able to get that. So, so for us, we're, we're, we're looking at autism as, as this, there's an underlying problem in motivation, and that if we want to be able to really draw out the best behaviors in our kids, then we need to find ways to uh, use things that motivate them in the moment. Yeah, and it sounds like you're connecting them with the world. Definitely, definitely. And, and, um, and, and it's really about building the instruction all the way around the child. Um, what we do by all means is much harder than a traditional behavioral program where you might sit down and open up a, a binder and kind of go through a set of drills for a kid. Um, because for us, there's a certain level of creativity that it takes to build the instruction around what the child is interested in right now. Uh, and be creative about creating those teaching opportunities. But the good news is if you can do that, you get typically better responding uh, from the kids as well because they're more motivated, they want to respond. It's the difference between um, sort of forcing kids to talk and getting kids to a point where they want to talk. That's a big difference. Okay. <laughs> I want to move on, um, just so we still have time. Um, uh, in the news, a couple charter schools opening up for kids with autism. Um, you know, charter schools tend to be different from a district school. They're smaller. You can have, things are a little more specialized, but maybe you don't have the broad network of teachers. You might not have the broad network of resources. Uh, what, what do you think? And I'm just throwing this out to all of you. Um, and no fear, Jan, you need, to be, uh, you need, to, you need <laughs> to be objective here because she's a big district teacher. Um, who wants to jump in first? Charter, I, I we, we really feel strongly that kids with disabilities, kids with autism, need to be part of their school communities and not in segregated settings. So that's kind of our belief is that I'm not sure that it really helps a student to put him in a setting with all students with, with autism. Um, I would rather have him on a comprehensive campus where he can participate to the most extent possible with all of his friends and, and people in this community and uh, kids that are going to invite him to birthday parties and have fun with him. So, um, I, you know, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, one of the things we have to recognize that's, that's challenging is that um, most of our districts are not doing what Mace is doing and bringing really solid experts like Jan and putting them in the schools and, and helping their teachers and training their teachers and training their staff and helping them do really good practices in the schools. Is that because of funding issues? I think it's, I think it's funding. I think it, it becomes a little bit of whose responsibility is it. I think it's, well, can't they just go to the special ed room? I think there's a number mm -hmm. of reasons why that happens. So 
I, I understand why some of these um, charters have been created. I, I certainly agree with Jan philosophically that I think, you know, I fully believe that it's better for kids to be in inclusive environments with typical, typically developing kids. Um, uh, you know, for us, I think the, the big thing is that we, we know that families need to have choices. And, um, and I think that uh, if you're a family and maybe you've struggled with um, uh, being able to have your kid get an appropriate education to school, the idea of a charter school is going to be really appealing for you. Um, where I want SARC to be as an organization is, uh, is to be very focused on creating the inclusive options for our families. So if I'm a family right now and there are not inclusive options, then, and this is the only option, then that's where I'm going to go. Um, so it's not that uh, the charter schools are, are not good or they're not good. I, my guess is they're going to get great outcomes in these schools. Um, but I think we need to work really hard to continue to work with schools to empower them to do, uh, to do better, to be able to educate our kids in their neighborhood classroom in the neighborhood school. Um, and, and again, where I'd like to see SARC is, let's create the inclusive option. There are special education classrooms, there are private schools, there are now charter schools. Um, but we want to create the inclusive options. And the only other um, point that I'd say about that is, is my only concern is that um, I really hope that, that public schools don't um, start thinking, well, maybe these kids aren't really our responsibility anymore because you can just go to the, the public charter school. It's free. You can apply there. Um, I really hope that our public schools, um, like Mesa, say, well, we've got a responsibility, a federal responsibility, to educate these kids and do it well. And that, you know, we want to create choices, but we need to make sure the kids in our district are doing it well. And that's, that's where SARC wants to be focused. How do we work with schools to do that? Well, um, SARC seems to be really successful in bringing in those mainstream kids. Um, is it pretty hard to do that? I mean, you're sounding like um, mainstream kids wouldn't be going to the charter schools, but I know the charter schools welcome the mainstream kids. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Okay, so I was. How, uh, how, do you, how do you get the mainstream kids to to Sark? Maybe that's the question. Oh, okay. So how do we get the typical kids to come to Sark? Um, well, when we first started, um, it was really tricky, and we required all of our staff to go home, get pregnant, and put their kids in the school. And that's, <laughs> and that's where we started. So um, we actually still have a lot of staff kids. It's to me, it's the best HR benefit in the world. I bring my child to to, to work with me every single day. Oh, that's neat. Um, so we do have a lot of staff kids. We do get a lot of siblings and cousins and neighbors. But I'll tell you, we've, we've, um, we've now established a track record of good outcomes, not only for kids with autism, but for typical kids. And when you start saying to a parent of a young child who does not have autism, that you're going to be able to come into a classroom where every single preschool teacher has a bachelor's degree, and more than half of them are working on a master's degree and they're board certified behavior analysis certification. When you tell parents that there's going to be one teacher for every three to four kids in the classroom, when the average preschool is going to probably have more in that you know, one to seven to ten kids in a classroom. And when you tell families and when you help parents understand that if you talk to any early childhood expert, not in autism, but typical development early childhood, they will tell you the single most important thing uh, is to establish early language in early childhood programs. Who's better at getting kids talking uh, than people that work with kids who don't talk? Um, so the, the reality of it is we're seeing kids, uh, the other way we've recruited kids is through the First Things First scholarships in our state. Uh, those are for kids living within 200% of the federal poverty line. These kids are showing up now in our school, and we're showing, our data are showing that they're making up to 18 months progress in their language in 10 months' time. Okay, I want to give Aaron a chance to share your view. 
charter schools. On, on the charter schools? Um, well, you know, I think I, I'm a proponent of inclusion. That's, you know, where a lot of my research has been, and, and I, um, I definitely agree with, with the things that have been said. Um, you know, it, it's not going to be right for every child. And, and it is really important to have those options um, and, and have places where they're going to have really specialized resources too. Um, we would love to get all of our schools to those places where they're all going to have those resources and some are going to be there and some aren't. And that's just, it's just kind of our reality and what we're um, kind of dealing with now. So I think it's, it's good to have the options, but I definitely, I, I would rather focus even more efforts on um, all schools becoming really inclusive places. Um, this will probably be my last question before the audience. Um, I'm just wondering, any suggestions for people that might want to write a letter to John Hoopenthal or the state legislature, uh, support for um, kids with special needs in Arizona? Uh, what, what's needed? <laughs> I'm new to Arizona, so I'm going to defer. <laughs> well, just I, resources, this could be natural, yeah. but, you know, President Obama. <laughs> <laughs> it, always um, comes money. Down, it always comes down to money of having enough resources. We'd love to have smaller class sizes. We'd love to have more um, supports in our classrooms. Um, we have limited budgets and the amount yeah, of money that we get from the state. that yeah. would help all kids would help children exactly. with autism. Exactly. Okay. I know you have something else. You know, I think that um, I think we need really good school leaders. I think we need leaders that are um, that are committed to not only um, educating general education students, but students with disabilities, and in this in this form, committed to uh, educating kids with autism. Um, certainly, we would like them to be also committed to more inclusive practices and committed to the resources that it'll take to do that. Uh, because what we know about inclusion, it, it, you know, you can have the best teachers and who are totally bought in, but if you don't have that leadership at the top, if you don't have people so that are, are making change, about school board members, a school board members, superintendents, principals principals, uh, anybody that's leading a school. Um, Senate Education Committee member? or All of the above. Anybody who has any authority whatsoever. Um, <laughs> you know, we, 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 you know it's, got, it's got to be important to them. I mean, a single teacher on a school who believes in inclusion, but a principal who's not supportive of it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be there. So to me, we need, we need really strong leaders who are committed just as much to kids with disabilities and kids with autism as they are to the rest of their student population. I would say nationally, I said what, what we really also need is, is at all school level, not just um, about children with autism, but at all school levels that we bring back some of that social training and, and becoming good citizens. Um, what we see is that kids with autism do really well um, it, until they get to about second or third grade, and that's when things fall off. And it's not a real coincidence that that's also when we stop teaching kids how to be good social you know, citizens to each other. Um, that's when it's not part of the curriculum anymore. And so if we can start to bring some of that back to schools in general, I think that um, in general our schools will improve. And it won't just be about autism, but it will definitely help. Okay, well, I'll ask you any, have we missed anything? <laughs> okay. Now we do have some time to take questions from all of you. There are two of us going around with microphones. Please raise your hand, we'll come over to you, grab you out. This is being recorded. It's gonna be up on our website first thing tomorrow morning. So any colleagues, classmates, students, family members who could not be here tonight, you can share this with them first thing tomorrow morning. Also, we ask you to please say your first and last name before your question since it is being recorded. Anyone have a question? Right up front here, come on up. <laughs> My name is Tiffany Reichman. Um, I have a question. So if we're training 
peers um, on autism, what are some good resources for us teachers to train our staff to train their students in autism? Sorry. Um, so like if I want to train my staff on how to train their students so that my students can come in and join them, what are some good resources that we can look up or? Well, there's some standard kind of social skills curriculum. So you, I would start with that um, and see, depending on your grade levels and what your, you know, kind of what age group you're looking at, they're going to look different. Um, but I would help teachers to kind of um, also um, look at that curriculum and see what, what is most important kind of in the general atmosphere of the classroom and then what kind of specific skills are their students having trouble with. So, um, you know, if you notice that your school or your classroom is really good at, you know, everybody's playing together at lunch and nobody's left out and that kind of thing, then that's great. But maybe they don't always work together when that's academic time. You know, then you can really target some of those, those specific social skills. Um, most of the curriculums that are out there don't take very long to, to get into um, and, and actually spend time during the class, but, but it's really good to have kind of a list because sometimes we don't think about those skills until we kind of see them. Um, second step is one that I use. Second step is a curriculum that um, I had used in um, Philadelphia when I was working there in the schools. Um, but there's there's a lot of them out there. I would um, start to kind of search out with just kind of general curriculum for social skills for your classrooms. Um, and uh, and if there's specific ones you, you find or want to know about, then <laughs> email me and I can help you. But there's, you know, there's definitely, um, there's a wide variety. So it, it really kind of depends on your school. Next question here on your right. Hi, good evening. My name is Pam Davis, and I own a clinic on the west side of the valley for children who do suffer from autism as well as other behavioral and emotional disabilities. And a lot of the parents that come to us have a lot of difficulty with the school systems on the west side. Now, I do not know a lot about the Mesa School, and I applaud you if you're doing the successful things and having the success that you're mentioning here tonight. But what we're running up against um, most commonly is teachers who are either not trained or very limited in their training to deal with this type of situation, and also a classroom where they have numbers in the 45 to 50 with maybe one or two um, teachers or an aide there with them. So they're really overwhelmed. So my question is when we mentioned or when you mentioned that you would like us to reach out to superintendents or whatever in the areas to try to get the funding or the, um, the buy-in, um, how do we do that when the teachers are in a situation already sounding like they don't have the buy-in um, in their school districts? Also, the funding is being shortened, if you will, it's being taken away, and the classrooms are, sizes are growing, and the ability for these children to get any kind of special educational needs that they are not only privileged to be able to have, but are also by law mandated that they have. So what would you advise with that question? How would you handle that? Well, my suggestion would be to start with the special ed director of whatever school districts that you're working with. And often, um, as a special ed director, I'm surprised sometimes that I don't hear about problems that are out there. So I always encourage parents, if you're not getting satisfaction talking to your individual teacher, please come to me. The other thing is, if that doesn't work, is maybe getting a group of parents together to maybe meet with that person and say, We're, we have some dissatisfaction here. What can we do to help? How can we work together to solve the problem? And we are always looking for 
uh, partnerships with parents, and I'm sure most school districts are the same with that. So that would be my recommendation: is that you just try to engage with them, try to problem solve, um, and you know, with with looking outside the box, it may be other ways to get resources, connecting with community. Um, there may be other ways to get some of those needs met within the limited resources that they have. Mm -hmm. And so forth. And again, um, there's a lot of pushback, a lot of um, reasons why they can't. So, um, some letter writing, or is there in every district? I, and Phoenix is synonymous for districts on every block, except for on the east side. Um, how do you know if your particular district or the several districts that we work within has someone like you that they we could take them to or have them research or you know reach out to for your support every district should have a special ed director or a person in charge of special education so i would seek that person out and and connect with them um, and you should be able just on their websites or just by calling their um, general number ask who is your special ed director who is responsible for special ed mm -hmm. oh, thank you. <laughs> next question here on your right Hi, my name is Karen Etha. My question is, is what do you think about the use of seclusion rooms um, as a behavioral intervention, like on a um, behavioral intervention plan when a child acts out? Um, I know that um, Governor Jan Brewer had signed into legislation. She was banning that. But I do know a lot of schools still use it, and I was interested in your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 uh, um, I have a serious problem with seclusion rooms. Um, I, uh, you know, I think there, there, are, there are many, it's really hard, there are very few treatments or interventions across the board that you can just say, we don't need this. Um, but I have real challenges with seclusion rooms, particularly when uh, I think many times we're not understanding the function of the behavior, and I think a lot of times they can be used to actually uh, make the behavior worse or it can go up. Um, I don't think that they're uh, respectful of, um, of people, of children who are there. I think they can even be unsafe to some degree. Um, but the, but the, biggest, the biggest problem I have with them really is that I don't know that they effectively teach a child anything. So, um, you know, even, even, if we, uh, even if we temporarily decrease behavior by putting a kid in a seclusion room, unless we give a child a replacement behavior that they need to do instead, they're not going to learn anything. All we've done is, is get rid of that behavior. And the, and the fact of the matter is, is that in the absence of being able to teach children replacement behaviors, if you just take away the bad behavior, they will find some other bad behavior to communicate their needs. So it doesn't really appreciate the communication needs of our, of our kids. Okay, well, uh, hold on. I see you nodding, but I know that Mesa Schools has seclusion rooms. And you have, I mean, you have very good arguments in favor of them typically with the door open, right? At I have to, school, I do I've have seen to, them. Yep. <laughs> I have to agree with Danny, and since I've come to Mesa, we have not added any additional okay. seclusion rooms, and I've tried wherever possible to remove them. They have been a tool that, have, tool that has been used by teachers when a student is um, having a lot of difficulty and they feel that rather than restraining that student who is really having an outburst that could be dangerous, um, they feel that it is better to put the child in a seclusion room um, whenever possible to avoid that physical confrontation of a restraint. 
Um, and what we've done at this point, we collect data on any time a seclusion room is used, and then we have a very strict policy of how a parent needs to be notified if that's been used, and then our director of training and compliance actually collects that information and then does training on those teachers to give them alternative methods to deal with that. Sometimes it might be an IEP meeting where we talk about that individual child to talk about is there another alternative that we can do for this child. So our goal is to decrease the use of them as well. And, and again, you have to look at the expertise mm -hmm. that Jan and her team have in terms of how to mm -hmm. respond to that. The bigger problem with seclusion rooms is that people are using them without that level of expertise and, and how to use them appropriately. I mean, again, I, I'm not in favor of them at all, but, um, but I think you, you, th there are ways potentially mm -hmm. to, to be able to reduce behavior that way. And I, I, well, you got to have the right people. I should people. say, mm -hmm. this was one specific school for very specific kids. It's not at all Mesa schools, uh, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Question over here on your right. Um, my question is, what when these autistic students are in inclusion or even in their self-contained classrooms and they're tested with the state standard testing and teachers are graded on that, what's the effect if you have a child with a low test score? Are the teachers going to want them in their classes? And how is that going to change the human dynamic of how we treat somebody that's making us lose our job? Uh, or causing us to look bad. Um, I, I'm an educator and also a parent of an autistic child, and I worry about that. I worry about what that formula is going to do. Yeah, I agree that, that that is a challenge. Um, what we've learned, though, is that many of our kids with disabilities can do as well or better than some of the, the non-disabled students with exposure to that, the curriculum. Uh, what we find is that if we isolate kids and don't expose them to gen ed classes, that they're not going to learn the material and they're not going to do well in the tests. But when the more they're exposed, the more they're participating, the more that they're involved in those classes, the better they do. Um, we do, I, I understand the issue of um, what do I do when I have three kids with disabilities in my class and it's going to bring my scores down. Um, and, you know, there's no easy answer to that. That's the way it is. But you probably also have other kids in your class that, that are not doing as well. Um, only with just a, a lot of intervention and trying to get the right services to that student is, is what we try to do in Mesa. But I understand. Yeah. I'm we have time for one more question, uh, but before mm -hmm. oh, we have, yeah, come on up. Um, before, before we take your question, go ahead, Tanya will take your question. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you guys for showing up tonight, all of our panelists for giving us their time, their expertise, and their very thoughtful conversation. And I wanted to thank the Teachers College at ASU. This event could not happen without them. Hi, my name is Roseanne DeLugos, and I'm concerned about the loss of arts, music, and sports, and how that affects autistic kids. But one thing that's not been mentioned at all is technologies. Could somebody comment on technology, iPads, and those kind, you know, just technology in general? We uh, in Mesa have a, a technology initiative going on right now. Uh, we have actually an assistive technology department within our special ed department where we try to get devices into students' hands. Um, we find we've had a lot of good success with um, a lot of communication has increased because of that, um, and it's a huge motivator for our kids. They love, many of them love our technology. Um, so we do try to increase that as much as we can. I don't know, Danny, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, 
you know, for us, it's, it's whatever motivates kids, right? Mm -hmm. So we're using, if it's a motivator for kids, and for a lot of our kids, technology is motivating. I, you know, I'd say that with some caution now. I mean, I, I think that a lot of our kids can get really sucked into this. And if you're trying to get kids to engage in social behavior and their uh, focus is only on an iPad, that becomes a really hard thing to pull them away from. Um, there are some researchers who actually will, will pull those kind of things out of, their t out of it entirely. They don't allow kids to go near it at all. We're not quite that extreme, um, but, uh, but, but I do think you have to be careful that you, you don't get in the habit of, of overusing technology as a motivator also, and that you're expanding the reinforcers in the interests of our kids as well. I just want to go back to the very first part of her question, though, about cutbacks to arts, and I'm not sure sports as much, maybe PE. Um, children with autism, do they benefit from arts and music? I mean, I, I would think that would be a real key. Um, are, are you worried about cutbacks in um, traditional schools, mainstream schools, or not so much? I, I think it's a, a worry for all kids. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, those kinds of cuts are, are definitely changing what we're doing in our schools and what we're doing for our kids, and that's going to be true for, for all students as well as children with autism. So it's definitely a concern. For me, it's the same thing. It's it's a, it's a it's the number of uh, motivators and reinforcers that are available for our kids. The more things that they have available to them that they may generate an interest in, the better we can uh, design our teaching around those things. And it's about creating balance for kids and making sure that they have that balance. Technology, arts, uh, and all of those things need to be a part of their lives. With that, I invite you all to join us downstairs. We have wine, beer, and soft drinks, and all of our panelists will be there. Let's give them another round of applause. <laughs>